Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 10th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at the weather forecast first thing. This coming from KCRG. More rounds of accumulating snow on the way. More bitterly cold air arrives. We're not done with snowfall yet this week. With an even deeper snowpack likely by the time we get to a very cold weekend. No precipitation is falling this morning, but we are still dealing with widespread poor road conditions, especially on lesser-traveled streets and highways. Colder air has allowed for some of the snow and slush to freeze up, providing an icy layer for streets that haven't been treated with ice-melting chemicals. Please use extra caution when heading out and about, and still give yourself extra time to get to your destination, despite no snow falling during the morning commute. Clouds hang around for much of the day, though a break or two could form later this afternoon. Temperatures only increase a handful of degrees through the day, pushing into the mid to upper 20s as a small, fast-moving disturbance moves through the state. This will lead to an area of light to moderate snow developing, for some of the area, between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock p.m., with areas along and north of Interstate 80 more favored for the possibility of heavier snowfall rates. This activity could affect the evening commute for those areas, with a renewed set of slick conditions are likely. This condition with snow that could last from late afternoon to around midnight at most could drop a quick one to three inches of snow for much of the area north of I-80, with a trace to an inch outside of that zone. The snow will be a bit lighter and fluffier in nature than the most recent snowstorm. We catch a bit of a break for much of the day on Thursday, with mostly cloudy skies continuing, but with lighter winds overall. It will still be on the colder side, with highs in the mid-twenties, and wind chills in the tens. The next snow system arrives as soon as Thursday night with an increase in cloud cover and eventually an increase in snow activity once again. Expect snow to be ongoing for the Friday morning commute across most of the area, with this activity continuing through much of the day on Friday, even into Friday night. The long duration of this snowfall event will again promote the potential for some heavier accumulations. The area of low pressure responsible for this snow will be strengthening as it moves through the region to our southeast, leading to increasingly strong winds on Friday into Saturday. This storm has the potential to provide a widespread area of 4 to 8 inches of snow as it moves through. Due to colder temperatures in the area, This snow will not be quite as wet again, which will lead to somewhat higher levels of blowing and drifting as winds increase. Expect disruptions to travel starting as soon as early Friday morning and continuing into the early portion of the weekend. Snow-covered roads, reduced visibility, and increasingly cold temperatures will make travel, especially through open rural areas, somewhat dangerous. If you had plans to do so during this time, consider making alternative plans to help stay safe. If you must hit the road, give yourself a lot of extra time 
to get to your destination, which gives you the chance to slow down, give extra stopping distance at intersections, and between you and the car in front of you. Behind the storm system, a significant cold front will move through and will lead to falling temperatures on Saturday. Highs in the tens will be met early in the day, with temperatures likely below zero by evening. We're likely to experience below zero air temperatures for an extended period of time, perhaps all the way through Tuesday morning. Wind chills will likely fall into the minus 20 to minus 40 range at times, especially during the nighttime or morning hours. This type of cold can be dangerous if not treated with respect, leading to the risk of frostbite or hypothermia if steps to protect your skin and body aren't taken. Most of next week looks quieter in terms of precipitation, with no additional snowfall looking very likely. We just don't see a huge amount of relief from the bitterly cold air, with highs warming modestly toward the single digits and low tens above zero by the middle and latter portion of the work and school week. Turning now to the front page of The Courier, Students Rally for Gun Safety, protest held at Iowa Capitol after Perry High School mass shooting. Story filed by Aaron Murphy, and the dateline is Des Moines. The article begins with a photograph of high school students and supporters as they gather in the rotunda of the Capitol Monday to protest gun violence in an event organized by March for Our Lives, Iowa. Hundreds of Central Iowa students rallied in the Iowa Capitol on Monday, calling for gun safety laws on the first day of the 2024 legislative session, in the wake of a recent deadly school shooting in Perry. The rally was part of a day of mobilization by young advocates as students at schools across the state conducted walkouts to protest legislative inaction on gun safety. The event at the Capitol was organized by the gun safety advocacy group March for Our Lives, Iowa. Advocates rallied in the Capitol Rotunda before taking to Governor Kim Reynolds' office a letter that demands State House leaders pass gun safety legislation. Quote, At what point do we say enough is enough? We cannot allow more people, more children, to lose their lives because of our legislators' inaction. Their silence is deadly, said Akshara Eswar, a senior at Johnston High School and one of the co-directors of March for Our Lives, Iowa. Quote, the time for requesting change is over. We demand it. We demand change, and we demand it now, unquote. On Thursday, a 17-year-old shot and killed a 6th grade student and wounded several others at Perry High School. Hannah Hayes, a senior at Des Moines Roosevelt High School and the other co-director of March for Our Lives Iowa, noted that the organization just roughly a week ago held a news conference at the Capitol to unveil its priorities for the 2024 legislative session. Quote, At that news conference, I said, gun violence isn't just some faraway issue that you see on the news. It can happen here. It can happen now. Hayes said, during Monday's rally, quote, and tragically, two days later, it did, unquote. Hayes's remarks included a focus on choice, an allusion to Reynolds's 
legislative priorities in 2023, which she often describes as giving parents more authority over and choice in their children's education. Hayes said one choice for parents face is whether to send their children to school so they can get a good education or keep them home so they can be safe from gun violence. Quote, Governor Reynolds can make this choice easier by passing gun legislation that will actually keep children safe because we choose policy and change over more empty thoughts and prayers, Hayes said. If elected officials don't protect people, we will choose to vote them out, unquote. Amelia Hamlin, a graduate of West Des Moines Valley High School and a freshman at the University of Wisconsin, joined the walkout Monday while home from school on winter break. Hamlin, 18, said she wants kids to be able to go to school without worry about being killed. The shooting in Perry hit close to home, Hamlin said. Quote, school shootings happen a lot in this country, but I think the fact that it was in Iowa and so close to where I live, it was really upsetting and more personal, she said. She said she wants school leaders to take action to prevent gun violence at school. Quote, take action and actually do something about kids being killed instead of just sending their thoughts and prayers, she said, because those aren't doing anything for dead kids, unquote. Reynolds, in her office on Monday, signed a disaster proclamation that authorizes state resources, including supplies, materials, and equipment, to assist Perry and Dallas County in the ongoing response to the school shooting. Quote, Through this proclamation, I am unleashing the full power of the state government to help Perry High School, the Perry community, and Dallas County recover from this senseless tragedy, Reynolds said in a news release. Republican president candidate and Florida governor Ron DeSantis speaking to Iowa reporters during a virtual news conference said dealing with such shootings is more a state and local issue than a federal response. DeSantis touted efforts in Florida to keep schools safe in the wake of the 2018 mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, but declined to suggest any changes to federal law he would support that would make them less frequent. DeSantis praised the response of local law enforcement to the Perry High School shooting and actions of the school's principal, who was shot and critically injured, trying to distract the gunman by calming him down so others could escape, according to Iowa authorities and the man's daughter. State's ag-gag laws upheld in two rulings. Federal Appeals Court says penalties are constitutional. Story written by Aaron Murphy, Dateline Des Moines. Saying they are not overly restrictive of free speech, two of Iowa's so-called ag-gag laws, which create penalties for individuals who trespass on agricultural property with intent to create financial harm, are constitutional, a federal appeals court ruled this week. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit delivered similar rulings Monday in the two cases reversing a lower court decision in both. A district court ruling on the third lawsuit remains pending, the Iowa Attorney General's office said. The appeals court rulings 
mean those state laws could soon become enforceable, but an attorney for one of the plaintiffs expressed confidence opponents would prevail upon appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Republican-majority Iowa legislature has made four different attempts since 2012 to pass such laws, which supporters say are needed to protect farmers from individuals who unfairly portray their farming practices in undercover recordings. Animal welfare advocates say the laws restrict the ability of advocates to shine a light on the mistreatment of animals. Both lawsuits that the appeals court ruled on were brought by Animal Legal Defense Fund, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, Bailing Out Benji, and the Center for Food Safety. One of the appeals court rulings addressed a law that would make it illegal to use a camera while trespassing on agricultural property. The appeals court said that law is sufficiently tailored to not be overly broad. Quote, Without a doubt, trespassing is a legally cognizable injury because it harms the property and privacy interests of property owners and other lawfully present persons. Trespassers exacerbate that harm when they use a camera while committing their crime, the court wrote. The act is tailored to target that harm and redress that evil. Because the act's restrictions on the use of a camera only apply to situations when there has first been an unlawful trespass, the act does not burden substantially more speech than is necessary to further the state's legitimate interests, unquote. David Maraskin, an attorney for the farm stand, one of the plaintiffs, said the appeals court decision splits with similar rulings in other district courts. Maraskin said that gives him confidence that the U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately side with the plaintiffs. The appeals court's other ruling addressed a law that would make it illegal to lie on an employment form in order to gain access to an agricultural facility. Quote, the statute filters out trespassers who are relatively innocuous and forces the criminal law on conduct that inflicts greater harm on victims and society. The appeals court wrote in one of its rulings, quote, in our view, the Iowa statute is not a viewpoint-based restriction on speech, but rather a permissible restriction on intentionally false speech undertaken to accomplish a legally cognizable harm, unquote. The ruling essentially ends the legal challenge to that law, Maraskin said. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd praised both of the court's rulings. Quote, Today's court rulings are a landmark victory for Iowa farmers and property owners, Byrd said in a statement. For too long, our farmers have battled with trespassers, people lying to get jobs, and hidden recording devices. But not any longer. With today's win, we will enforce Iowa's agriculture trespass laws, strengthen security, and put those fears to rest. Unquote. An attorney for the Animal Legal Defense Fund said the group will continue to litigate the constitutionality of the trespass law. Quote, that law imposes a heightened penalty for individuals 
like undercover investigators, journalists, or activists, who use or place a camera on private property. Animal Legal Defense Fund senior staff attorney Caitlin Folly said in a statement, quote, The Animal Legal Defense Fund and its co-plaintiffs will continue to fight laws that unfairly target the speech of organizations advocating for animals and the public's rights to know about abuses that happen behind the closed doors of factory farms, unquote. Governor Kim Reynolds and Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag also issued statements praising the appeals court's rulings. Quote, this is a win for both Iowans and the country, Reynolds said. No longer will people be able to gain access or employment to agricultural production facilities with the intent to cause physical injury or economic harm. We will always stand up for the security and safety of our farmers and their land, unquote. Said Nag, the legislature and Governor Reynolds enacted these laws to safeguard our ag community and protect our food security. It is welcome news that Iowa producers can now be protected from trespassers and it sends a clear message to those who maliciously target our livestock farms, unquote. Barb Kalbach, CCI board president and a fourth-generation family farmer from Dexter, criticized the rulings. Quote, Through these rulings, the courts suggest that ag-gag laws should be interpreted more narrowly in Iowa, which says to me that they think Iowans should have less protections when it comes to telling the truth. We wholeheartedly disagree with that notion, Callback said in a statement. Quote, we believe Iowans must have our rights protected, the right to engage in free speech rooted in truth, to protest and to protect our communities. CCI members will never quit fighting for those rights, unquote. Governor Reynolds Cut Iowa Taxes Now, story written by Tom Barton and Caleb McCullough of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds used her seventh condition of the state speech Tuesday to call for accelerated income tax cuts and to express grief over last week's deadly school shooting in Perry and her gratitude for law enforcement and school officials who responded to it. The Republican governor, in her annual address to a joint session of the Iowa House and Senate, also outlined plans to increase teacher pay, reform the state's area education agencies that serve children with disabilities, and create a network of nonprofits to connect Iowans in need with assistance. Reynolds began her address by acknowledging the shooting Thursday at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Joliffe, a sixth grader, and injured seven students and school staff. The 17-year-old shooter, a student there, killed himself. Quote, Our hearts are heavy and our prayers continue for the victims and their families and for the entire Perry community, Reynolds said, according to a copy of her prepared remarks. The senselessness of it shakes us to our very core. Yet even in the darkest hour, light and hope break through. That was certainly the case on that day, unquote. Principal Dan 
Marburger, tried to calm down the shooter and distract him so students could flee, according to his daughter and law enforcement. He was critically injured, sustaining multiple gunshot wounds at close range. And here in the story, we have a photograph of Governor Reynolds walking into the joint session, and she can be seen in the middle of the crowd wearing a red blazer. Quote, His unflinching bravery saved lives that morning. Dan is a hero, and we pray that he's soon back where he belongs, with the students who are so lucky to have him, Reynolds said. She also acknowledged the courageous actions of the local law enforcement officers, first responders, and state and federal agents who responded to the shooting. Quote, Whether in person or in spirit, Iowans showed up that day in Perry and will be there every day through their recovery, the governor said. Reynolds and lawmakers took a moment of silence to honor those affected by the Perry school shooting and also an Algona police officers and Ionia firefighter who died in the line of duty last year. Reynolds did not propose any new firearm restrictions in reaction to the shooting. Speaking after the address, Democratic House and Senate leaders said she and Republicans should address firearm access and storage and broader gun violence issues in the wake of the shooting. Quote, one of the best ways to honor the community of Perry, who just endured this shooting, is to come up with policies that will make it so that there's not another school shooting, said Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, a Democrat from Windsor Heights. Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, noted several of the governor's proposals received bipartisan applause, including proposals to raise teacher pay, expand workplace learning opportunities, and extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. Quote, I think we've seen from this governor that she has a willingness to take on difficult issues and have bold agendas and lay those out, Grassley said. And I think she did that again tonight. And, quite frankly, on several of the issues, seeing all legislators rise, I think shows the governor really laid out an agenda that there's going to be interest from both parties to want to have those conversations, unquote. Under taxes, Reynolds' priorities and policy proposals for the year includes accelerating income tax cuts passed in 2022 that started to take effect this year. The law would gradually reduce personal income taxes to a flat 3.9% in 2026. Reynolds' proposal would expedite that transition. Most working Iowans would pay a 3.65% state income tax on their 2024 wages, and then a 3.5% in 2025. The proposal would reduce Iowans' state income taxes and thus limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first five years. Republicans say the state can afford more tax reductions with a $2.1 billion general fund budget surplus projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year. Full emergency accounts and $3.7 billion in the Taxpayer Relief Fund. Quote, Let me be absolutely clear. The surplus does not mean that we aren't spending enough. 
It means we're still taking too much of Iowans' hard-earned money, Reynolds said, according to prepared remarks. The governor also called for lowering taxes businesses pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Under her proposal, Iowa employers would pay a maximum rate of 5.4% on wages up to $18,000 per employee, as opposed to the current 7% on wages up to $36,000 per employee. Reynolds' office estimates that will save Iowa employers more than $800 million over five years. Quote, we turned our unemployment system into a re-employment system, and it's having the intended effect, Reynolds said. Our unemployment rate remains low. We have the sixth highest labor force participation rate in the country, and Iowans are now spending on average less than 10 weeks on unemployment. Because so many Iowans are drawing a paycheck instead of a government check, our unemployment trust fund is full, to the point where we can reduce the unemployment insurance payments that employers make by half, unquote. After Reynolds's address, House and Senate Democratic leaders said they were concerned that further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy, while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with no benefits. Quote, the people who have been the biggest beneficiaries of this tax cut that's currently in place are those who are earning more than a million dollars a year, Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Jokum, a Democrat from Dubuque, said. Under education, Reynolds also is asking the Iowa legislature to invest $96 million in new money to increase starting teacher pay by 50% to $50,000 and to set a minimum salary of $62,000 for teachers with at least 12 years of experience. In addition, her proposed budget includes $10 million for a merit-based grant program to reward teachers, quote, who have gone above and beyond to help their students succeed, unquote. Reynolds also called for reforming the state's nine regional area education agencies created in the 70s to provide special education support for school districts, arguing they operate without meaningful oversight. Quote, over the last year, in dozens of conversations with parents, teachers, school administrators, and AEA staff, it's become clear that while some of our AEAs are doing great work, others are underperforming, Reynolds said. Quote, we have superintendents who won't use their services but are still required to pay for them, and AEAs have grown well beyond their core mission of helping students with disabilities creating top-heavy organizations with high administrative expenses, she said. Instead of funding funneling through the school districts to their AEA, the districts would be given the option under her proposal to keep that funding and allocate it for special education services as they choose, at an AEA or at a private company. Under her proposal, AEAs would focus solely on students with disabilities and independent oversight would move to the State Department of Education. It would eliminate property taxes that are collected to support AEA functions that are not related to special education. 
the governor's staff has projected that would be an impact of $68 million in fiscal 2025. Quote, in short, each school will decide how best to meet the needs of their students, Reynolds said, saying her proposals would not reduce special education funding by one dime. Quote, we are simply giving control of the funding to those who work directly with your child on a daily basis, and we're taking special education off autopilot, where it has been stuck for far too long, she said. In the last five years, Iowa students with disabilities have ranked 30th or worse on 9 of 12 national assessments, while Iowa spends over $5,300 per pupil on special education than the national average. Mike Baranek, president of the Iowa State Education Association, the union representing Iowa's public school teachers, called Reynolds' proposal to raise teacher pay long overdue. Quote, we are optimistic that this promise will turn into action for all of the employees in our public schools, some of whom work with the most vulnerable students and are still only making $9 per hour, Berenick said in a statement. Quote, we hope this is not an empty campaign promise, but will generally mean that she values recruiting and retaining public educators, community college instructors, and the professionals serving in our area education agencies, unquote. Baranek also called on lawmakers to discuss real solutions to addressing gun violence in the wake of last week's school shooting. He said school districts are in need of additional public school resources and access to counselors, psychologists, and social workers, as well as resources to protect against cyberbullying and harassment. ISEA also called for continued support of area education agencies, which, along with school staff and law enforcement, jumped into action to help with grief and counseling services, unquote. And now, listeners, we want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 10th, on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. If you're struggling with your mental health, there's something Your Life Iowa wants you to know. It's all right to feel sad, to be angry, to feel depressed, to be anxious, to feel lonely. Something else that's definitely all right? Getting help for your mental health. When you're ready, Your Life Iowa is here for you 24-7. Find support at yourlifeiowa.org. Together, we can make everything all right. Brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the Des Moines Register, and it's titled, Kim Reynolds Should Have Taken Federal Money to Help Kids Eat in the Summer. This was written by Lucas Grundmeyer on behalf of the Register's editorial board, and it begins with these two bullet points. Kim Reynolds' arguments don't justify withholding food assistance from children. Iowa has given itself a very tall task for no good reason. 
Iowa's government should use every resource at its disposal to avoid kids going hungry. But Governor Kim Reynolds has chosen a different path, passing up almost $29 million in direct federal assistance to families. Her administration will have an uphill climb to demonstrate, as she promises, that it will meet the needs of the state's children more thoroughly than it would with the extra aid. Children's welfare is what actually matters here. But Reynolds's announcement has set off two weeks so far of anger and confusion among Iowans and invited mocking from the national commentators. Quote, it still flabbergasts me when governors and state legislatures refuse free money from Uncle Sugar that will help their constituents, and when they refuse it out of ideological fanaticism, religious extremism, or pure cussed meanness, writes Charles Pierce in Esquire. Those aren't the reasons Reynolds and two of her agency administrators shared in a news release that was emailed out 72 minutes before the start of a three-day weekend, including Christmas. But the justifications they did give are no more compelling. A lot of words are attributed in that statement to Reynolds, Health and Human Services Director Kelly Garcia, and Education Director Mackenzie Snow. But they boil down to these arguments. Debit cards given to families to buy food during summer were appropriate during the COVID-19 pandemic, but no longer. Also, the lack of restrictions on cards mean that they would be used too often on unhealthy food during an obesity epidemic. And lastly, Iowa's state programs can better meet children's nutritional needs and are more deserving of federal subsidies. Kim Reynolds' arguments don't justify withholding food assistance from children. It's hard to decide which of these ideas strains credulity the most, or whether they're more or less galling than Nebraska Governor Kim Pillen's declaration about declining the program. Quote, I don't believe in welfare, unquote. It's macabre to argue soberly whether feeding children is financially sustainable outside a global pandemic. But, taking Reynolds at her word, Congress judged differently in 2022, when it made the debit card program permanent, requiring states only to agree to pay a portion of costs and help with administration. U.S. Agriculture Department records show about two-thirds of states have opted in for summer of 2024. As with previous cases where Reynolds turned down federal money, her stand for fiscal responsibility will have far less impact than Iowans missing out on the help that other Americans receive. And, remember, those Iowans include children in food-insecure households. Reynolds's obesity non-sequitur, quote, an EBT card does nothing to promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an epidemic, unquote, has been skewered skillfully online since December 22nd. Suffice it to say, it's insulting to low-income families who apparently aren't among the Iowans Reynolds trusts to do the right thing. EBT cards can be used on most grocery items, including nutrient-dense foods. 
To be fair, that won't matter if the state keeps Snow's pledge in the news release, quote, We are already leveraging family-focused, community-based solutions to support child nutrition and well-being in the summer, and we look forward to expanding these existing partnerships, unquote. It's a big promise, and these officials need to be held accountable for it. But the Summer Food Service Program, and anything resembling it, can never match the convenience of summer EBT. And that's an enormous drawback. While the food and academic enrichment options associated with the Summer Food Service Program are valuable, children have to be at certain location at a certain time to take advantage. Parents or guardians might be unable to manage it during their workdays. Transportation assistance is rare to non-existent. An extra $40 of groceries per child per month that can be purchased anytime is a far more useful benefit for many families. Iowa has given itself a very tall task for no reason. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's promotional materials also push back with factual support on Iowa's talking points. Quote, Summer EBT has been tested through a decade of demonstration projects and rigorous evaluation has shown that summer EBT effectively mitigates food insecurity and improves diet quality, unquote. On top of all this, the federal money would be largely spent at Iowa retail stores, but Iowa will forego those millions. Garcia who has made tangible improvements in the former Department of Human Services, now merged with the Department of Public Health, gave noncommittal but vaguely optimistic remarks at a public meeting on December 14th about whether Iowa would participate in the summer debit card program. That made the decision to opt out a little more disappointing. While some might believe that the Reynolds administration has squandered any benefit of the doubt. The editorial board isn't quite ready to say the state cannot impress with its summer nutrition strategies. We'll watch closely, but the entire challenge is needless. Reynolds should have taken the money. It's distributed in a family-friendly way and feeds hungry children. Now from the New York Times, January's secret. It's the best month. Once you see why, you may never want it to end. This was written by Stephen Kuritz. Consider the plight of January, the sad sack of months. It lacks for sunlight. It has some of the worst weather in the northern hemisphere, a dreary cold that happens to stretch on for 31 days. It's a month without social holidays. Even lowly February, its companion in the winter doldrums, has Valentine's Day. January suffered another blow in 2004 when its one day of excitement, Super Bowl Sunday, moved permanently to the year's second month. Hollywood isn't much help. Rather than providing distractions in these bleak days, the entertainment industry has made January a dumping ground for films that have no shot at winning awards or making year-end critics' lists. But the very things that make January a bit of a bore have endeared it to its fans. And while many people loathe the month, 
because it means a restart of the daily grind, Robert Mack, a stand-up comedian, welcomes the return of steady work. Quote, I dislike breaking up my routine in the second half of December, said Mr. Mack, 55, who lives in suburban Washington and, like many comics, travels extensively. Quote, I can't get anything done, unquote. Others like the month's lack of social obligations and sense of calm. Quote, January is quickly becoming my favorite month of the year. Chelsea Delman, a real estate agent in Providence, Rhode Island, said in a video she recently posted on her TikTok account, The Socialite Files, quote, I don't have to go to any parties. I don't have to go to any holidays. I don't have to do anything. I can just chill, unquote. Speaking by phone, Ms. Delman, 35, sounded relieved to have made it through an overbooked December. Quote, I have three family birthdays in the week of Christmas, she said, and my father's birthday and my best friend's birthday are both on the 26th. By the time January comes around, I feel like I can breathe again. I feel like I've gone to the spa in January, unquote. That sense of having nowhere to go and nothing to do is one of the month's defining features. After December's rush of Amazon 18-wheelers and minivans headed to grandmother's house, highway traffic falls sharply in January, and the year ahead, just days old, has the clarity of the open road. Along with its little sibling February, January belongs to the year's slowest period for tourism in many cities, including New York. Tiffany Townsend, a spokeswoman for the New York City Tourism and Conventions, said the sparse crowds make the city more navigable. Quote, For travelers, and even for New Yorkers, if there's something you want to do, waiting till January is a good move, Miss Townsend said. The line is a little shorter. Maybe you get the restaurant reservation that you couldn't get in December, unquote. Jen Sezu, an owner of Fish Cheeks and Bangkok Supper Club, which recently received two stars in the New York Times, said that reservations are indeed easier to come by these days. Business at her restaurant is down 15 to 20 percent this month, she said, a marked contrast with what she described as the, quote, pure craziness of December. Though she would prefer full tables, Miss Seisu added that January allows her to, quote, just relax a little bit and set myself up for the year. She also encourages her staff to take vacations during these less than harried weeks. Quote, it's a good time to take a little bit of a breather, she said. January makes up for the cold and gray with clearance sales, discount theater tickets, and other cut-rate promotions. The thrifty person's dream month. Airline traffic slackens, which means cheap flights. Quote, people are spent after the holidays, said Brian Kelly, who runs the travel website The Points Guy. Quote, the entire industry takes a breather in January, and there are great deals, unquote. While fares to Caribbean islands and ski resorts ping upward, the cost of airline tickets to other destinations plummets. A quick survey by Mr. Kelly showed 
$467 as the price of a coach ticket from New York to London. The cost for that same flight in June was $745. Mr. Kelly, a frequent January flyer, added that he is off to Finland this week, flying business class to Helsinki on his way to Lapland to see the Northern Lights. Miss Zezu's industry is on the front lines of a recent seasonal invitation, Dry January. Her restaurants, like many others, now offer teas, mocktails, and other non-alcoholic beverages. It's part of a trend in which the wellness and self-help industries have used the age-old idea of New Year's resolutions to turn January into a time of new gym memberships and cayenne pepper and lemon juice cleanses. Ms. Delman, the January fan in Providence, said she has no intention of ruining the year's most uneventful month with onerous self-improvement tasks. Quote, I'm not going to torment myself with a 10-day cleanse or showing up to the gym for a week, she said. I just live my life, unquote. Next, from the New York Times, Democrats must not repeat the mistakes of globalization. Written by Ro Khanna, last September, tech's biggest names trekked to Capitol Hill for a forum on artificial intelligence. In a meeting close to journalists, executives briefed nearly two-thirds of the Senate on the future of AI. A few respected labor and civic leaders were present, but the tech titans dominated the headlines. There's an assumption in Silicon Valley that the first trillionaire may well be an AI entrepreneur, so tech leaders were eager to share their thoughts on some rules of the road. They warned of killer robots and the Terminator scenario of misinformation and fake videos, but gave short shrift to broader issues of economic fairness and wealth disparity that are of more urgent concern to most Americans. Watching Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and Sam Altman lead a confab on the ethical principles and regulations that should guide AI development was reminiscent of Davos conferences in the 1990s and early 2000s. You remember the story that those Davos conferences broadcast to the world? Everyone will be able to get a knowledge job. Consumer goods will become cheaper. Globalization coupled with the internet will lead to prosperity for everyone. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. What those Davos participants missed was how unfettered globalization hollowed out the working class here at home. We are all familiar with the consequences now. Shuttered factories and rural communities that never saw the promised jobs materialize. As the American dream slipped away from them, many people developed deep and justified resentment. They saw the obscene concentration of wealth and opportunity in districts like mine in the heart of Silicon Valley. The evangelicals for the new economy were prescient about the wealth generation that globalization and the Internet would unleash but wrong that it would increase economic opportunities for all Americans. Like globalization, AI will 
undoubtedly bring benefits, tremendous benefits, to our economy with higher productivity, personalized medicine, and education and more efficient energy use. Generative AI has the potential to help those with fewer resources or experience quickly learn and develop new skills. The real challenge, though, is how to center the dignity and economic security of working-class Americans during the changes to come. And unlike the Industrial Revolution, which spanned half a century at least, the AI revolution is unfolding at lightning speed. Today, the Democratic Party is at a crossroads, as it was in the 1990s, when the dominant wing in the party argued for prioritizing private sector growth and letting the chips fall where they may. The criticism of this approach, offered around the time by Senator Paul Wellstone, Senator Rush Feingold, and Representative Bernie Sanders, as he was then, that the offshoring globalization decade was not helping the working class and was, in fact, hurting it, was largely ignored. When it comes to AI, the fault lines for the Democratic Party similarly run between business and labor, between donors and grassroots activists, and between those concerned foremost with our global competitiveness and those concerned with the economic well-being of the working class. The tension between business and labor became clear in the battle over proposed legislation in California, AB 316, which divided me and many California legislators from Governor Gavin Newsom. The bill would have required, for at least five years, a human driver on board self-driving trucks weighing more than 10,000 pounds that are transporting goods or passengers. Tech companies argue that replacing human drivers with AI is feasible, will reduce labor costs, and will therefore make it cheaper to transport goods and services. They lobbied heavily against the bill. The bill, nonetheless, passed overwhelmingly, with support from more than 80% of the California legislature and more than 70% of California voters. Unfortunately, Mr. Newsom sided with the business advocates in September and vetoed the bill. I supported AB 316 because drivers say it's currently an unnecessary risk to have large trucks on public roads without a human on board. This is especially true if there is extreme weather, hazardous conditions, or heavy cargo on board. No one understands the safety risks at play here better than the drivers themselves, and it's both foolish and insulting to suggest they would make up such concerns to keep jobs that do not add value. We wouldn't trust planes to fly without pilots, even with the most sophisticated and well-tested autopilot systems. And we wouldn't trust large trucks to drive without operators. It's not just the AI concerns of truck drivers that are causing divides in the Democratic coalition. Last summer, some California politicians were hesitant to support the Writers Guild of America strike publicly, given Hollywood's cultural importance and fundraising power. I was proud to join the picket line. 
as in the case of self-driving trucks, the issue comes down to giving workers a say. Writers were intrigued by the ways AI could help as a research tool and unlock new potential for movies and TV, but were concerned that studios might rush to use AI to write cookie-cutter scripts and sacrifice imagination and creativity on the altar of profits. It's better for writers, not executives, to slowly discover the best uses of AI in entertainment. In their new contract with the studios, the writers won important AI guardrails concerning credits and compensation, protections that can evolve over time. Even though writers' jobs are very different from truck drivers' jobs, labor solidarity is one of the few countervailing forces that can blunt the dehumanization of work motivated by short-term profit maximization in a world where AI is capable of suddenly disrupting both blue and white-collar work. That said, workers need more than just a voice and guardrails. They should also share in the company profits. Whether they are working for a trucking company, a production studio, or a car manufacturer, like many chief executives, workers should receive compensation based on profits and the company's performance, not solely hours worked. It's the only way workers can fully thrive as AI increases America's productivity capacity. Of course, there are beltway skeptics of pro-labor policies. What about the threat that leading AI companies will flee to China if we pay workers more here? They ask. Don't raise worker bonuses or have them share in profits, or we'll lose the global race, they warned. We caved to that blackmail in the 1990s and 2000s, and look where it landed us. Ordinary Americans are tired of hearing about abstract notions of our global competitiveness while their pay doesn't keep up and their costs of living rise. There are already reports that AI could displace tens of thousands of jobs this year at big companies, potentially causing damage to their culture and their local communities, and starting a concerning trend. A workforce committee at each company should weigh in on how AI could help employees better do their existing jobs, whether new hiring should slow down, and what new credentialing or roles for affected employees could look like before restructuring and letting people go. Here's the balance we need to strike. We should encourage disruptive innovation at our universities, startups, and even large companies, but prioritize the perspective and earnings of workers in the adoption of any such technology that develops. This is a vision for democratic innovation that will still allow us to compete economically and militarily, but not at all human costs. Democratic innovation recognizes that the need for social cohesion may be the ultimate determiner of the success of the American experience and American leadership. The Democratic Party cannot claim to be the party of the working class if we allow AI to erode the earnings and security of the working class. The party can be forgiven once for the mistake of abetting globalization to run amok 
Just not twice. Technologies, our technologies, are meant to complement and enhance human initiative, not subordinate or exploit it. We must push for workers to have a decision-making role in how and when to adopt technologies. And we must insist on workers profiting from the implementation of these technologies. Our generational task is to ensure that AI is a tool for lessening the vast disparities of wealth and opportunity that plague us, not exacerbating them. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 10th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around Iowa that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 